We were created by design. We were purpose for this time. Hello and welcome to the Fremont Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. I'm Stephen Robles and we're interviewing today Neil Shenvey and he has many accolades. I'll let him explain them, but we do have one thing in common. We're both homeschool parents and so I'd love to hear more about hey, that yo. too. <laughs> but uh, Neil, can you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, yeah, what you're into, we'll say. Sure. My pleasure. It's uh, great to be on this podcast. So I am a PhD theoretical chemist by training. I actually got a PhD at UC Berkeley um, about, oh man, 15 years ago, roughly. I don't know, something like that. Uh, and I worked, you know, um, I did a postdoc at Yale uh, with uh, Professor John Tully, did a postdoc at Duke after my wife and I moved down to North Carolina for her residency training. She's a doctor. And about five years ago, I quit my job to homeschool our four kids. We have uh, kids nine, eight, six, and three. So the, the older three are in Daddy Academy with uh, Dr. Daddy. That's awesome. Uh, before we get into all the uh, deep apologetic stuff, I just have to ask, yeah. we homeschool as well. I have a nine, six, and two-year-old, but we do uh, uh, classical conversations, the uh, homeschool group. Do you anything like that, the homeschool groups? Yeah, we're in the same group, actually. Yeah, oh, we're awesome. conversations. Cool. Yeah. yeah, we love it. Yeah, we're big proponents of it. So anyway, yeah. uh, I got my homeschool stuff out of there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of there. yeah. It sounds like you're uh, pretty lightweight on your academic stuff there. You, uh, we may need to just oh, yeah. podcast and uh, find somebody else. <laughs> but yeah, um, so Neil, theoretical chemistry, um, critical theory, how, why, what, what's going on there? How did you get into this topic? And, and maybe maybe she should even just tell what it is and yeah, how you got into it. Sure. Yeah, they're very, very different subjects, entirely different. So I, you know, I got into apologetics years ago when I was a postdoc at Yale, just the how to explain and defend the Christian faith to people who aren't sure whether it's true. So that was something I was really passionate about, and I had been for years. So, uh, you know, learning about the historicity of the New Testament documents, um, how do you reconcile science and religion, all those kind of standard apologetics models and explanations. Uh but then a few years ago, I began noticing people uh, kind of drift, the Christians drifting theologically. And I didn't think a lot about it, but I noticed that they would start often with a concern for social justice. And that's fine. You know, we, we should be concerned with justice as Christians and seeing justice instituted in our laws and, and systems, that is fine. But then from this initial interest in social justice, they would begin drifting and then after a few years, their beliefs would move farther and farther away from what could be considered sort of orthodoxy to the point where some people became atheists. And I couldn't figure it out. I was like, what's going on? How do you move from saying things like, I oppose racism? Yeah, of course, yeah, you should as a Christian, to then saying, well, I don't think that Jesus was the son of God. I think all religions are equally true. That they, how, What's the connection? I couldn't figure it out. And so, yeah, so I've been seeing that a lot. I didn't think much about it, but then a few, I guess a year, year and a half ago, a friend of mine recommended this book called Race, Class, and Gender, which is a 500-page uh, anthology of writings um, touching on a lot of topics, things like Marxism, gender studies, uh, queer theory, critical race theory, different topics like that. And when I read this book, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I suddenly had this epiphany 
people are not just adopting a, a few new beliefs about politics. They're adopting a new worldview. That's eroding their Christian worldview. And that's how they move from point A to point B. You know, they, they, they're gradually absorbing these ideas. They don't even realize they are. But if you follow those ideas to their logical conclusion, you have to reject some basic Christian doctrines. And that, mm. that, that ideology, that worldview, is called critical theory. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, my wife and I, we are uh, artists, musicians, so we are kind of in that world. And, you know, we've we've seen actually that similar trajectory a few times. And so that's interesting that you say that. I hadn't uh, understood that connection either. I think it may have been just a couple months ago when I came across uh, your article on Reasonable Faith uh, podcast with Dr. Craig. They were uh, referring to your article on critical theory. And I just I sort of started diving into this topic about two or three months ago and, and seeing those connections as well. And it's really interesting. You're exactly right. When you first notice, like, how did they get from things that we would all consider biblical, like fighting against racism, standing against real injustice to, you know, oh, all religions are equal. It doesn't it doesn't really make sense until you start to see this underlying uh, factor that's going on. So maybe would you mind for us just explaining what is critical theory um, and how does it relate to social justice and just give us an overall, you know, kind of breakdown of what we're dealing with here. Sure. I think it's really important to define terms, you know, in this discussion and everything else. So let me start with this social justice. Um, that's a big stumbling block for people because some people say, you know, well, of course, you know, Christians have to be concerned with social justice. It's, it's, it's a non-negotiable, whereas other Christians will say, no, it's absolutely unbiblical. And, and they'll argue for hours, but then no one will define what they mean by social justice, which is shocking to me. Uh, so the problem here, I think, is that the term social justice is, is nebulous. So there are three major definitions that people use. The first actually goes back, the original definition goes back to a Catholic priest in the 19th century, and he coined the term social justice to describe applying the teaching of the Catholic Church to societies, to laws. And how do you promote human flourishing from a Catholic perspective uh, through laws and institutions? So that's, and he coined the term social justice. So Today, when some people use the phrase social justice, they're thinking explicitly about Catholic social teaching. And in fact, the, the Catholic catechism has like an entire section on social justice. So that is one definition. And similarly, some evangelical Christians will also define social justice just to be biblical justice. That When they say social justice, they mean applying the Bible standards of morality to society. And so, yeah, I mean, of course, hey, who wouldn't want to apply the Bible standards of morality to society? Now, how we do that can be complicated, but essentially, I think all Christians would say, yeah, it would be great if we tried as Christians to apply the Bible's definitions of right and wrong, of just and unjust to our laws. Uh, again, it's the application can be complicated, but I think we'd all agree in principle it's a good idea. So that's one definition, and I think that's more or less okay. Uh, the second definition is kind of nebulous, and this is where it gets tricky. Uh, people will use social justice to mean a good thing. It's the kind of thing that everyone likes, like, you know, uh, equality or, um, or goodness. or you know, So it, it's a kind of phrase that doesn't have a concrete idea attached to it. So you'll say, well, you know, I'm for social justice. Well, what do you mean? You know, I, I'm for uh, having, you know, like a, a just society. Well, what do you mean by that? I don't know. Get off my back. I just want to just society. Well, well, the problem is 
who wants an unjust society? I mean, everybody wants a just society. And so if you use social justice in that sense, it's, it's a positive thing, but it doesn't mean much. I think the problem here is that a lot of people just say social justice and mean a good thing like, you know, puppies or baseball or, you know, Taylor Swift songs. Yeah, everyone's for those, I guess. I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, but that doesn't give you much to go on. And so when I read this, started reading this book, uh, Race, Class, and Gender, and another related book called Readings in Diversity and Social Justice, these are two anthologies, I began reading those books, and at first I thought they were using the phrase social justice in that second sense. Like, they kept using the phrase social justice, we should stand up for social justice, and I thought they were just being nebulous. They were just kind of being abstract, ambiguous, they kind of want this good thing. But then I realized, actually, no. They were being very concrete. And this is where critical theory comes in. There's a third definition of social justice, uh, and this is derived from critical theory. So according to these writers, social justice means the liberation of all people from oppression. Hmm. So the, the, the destruction of all forms of social oppression, that is social justice. And they define oppression according to this ideology of critical theory. Now, here's the problem. I don't use the term social justice because it's so nebulous. When yeah. you, you see, I'm for social justice, well, in what sense? And people will never, will often not clarify at all. And I fear that too many Christians, especially young Christians, hear the phrase social justice. They think it's a good thing, but they're signing on to this third definition. They don't realize it. Mm. People using that phrase are really supporting critical theory. And as I, I'm going to try to show you, critical theory has some basic conflicts with Christianity. So does that explain why, how they're connected? So the social justice movement, a lot of organizations today that espouse social justice very loudly are founded on this worldview, this ideology of critical theory, implicitly. And as you know, I describe it to you, I think you'll immediately recognize that that's what people mean when they talk about social justice causes. Um, so why don't, I, why don't I go ahead and explain what the, the yeah, yeah. critical theory is? Yeah, okay. Um, so I've you know it's it's kind of like trying to nail down postmodernism. You ever talked about postmodernism? It's kind of a broad category, right? So I've tried to sort of generally outline the the ideology, uh, but it's kind of fuzzy at its borders. But I've boiled it down to sort of six basic premises, basic tenets or beliefs. I'll just list them really quickly, and then I'll kind of maybe if you ask questions about them, I can go into more detail. Yeah. But here are the six basic tenets of critical theory. So number one, individual identity, who you are as an individual, is inseparable from your group identity, and especially whether you're part of an oppressed group or an oppressor group with respect to some category like race, class, gender, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, or some other category. So that's number one. You're, who you are as an individual is inextricably linked to your group identity. Um, that's number one. Number two, oppressor groups. So these would be people, things like uh, men, whites, heterosexuals, the rich, the educated. So these are all oppressor groups, according to this definition. Oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hegemonic power. What's the hegemonic power? Hegemonic power means the ability to impose your values, your norms, and expectations on society. So it's not about just having money. So a guy, a person can have money or have power, have education, and not be part of an oppressor group because that group as a group is not imposing their values on society. That's what makes you an oppressor. Um, that's number two. Uh, number three, 
our fundamental moral duty is to free groups from oppression. That's our number one to-do list on our list of things to do. You know, critical theorists will not generally talk explicitly about virtues like compassion, tolerance, uh, 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 patience, um, generosity, uh, fidelity, honesty. They might, they might believe those things are good, but their main discourse is about freeing groups from oppression. That is the, the reason d'etre for critical theory to exist. Um, and then uh, what are some other sort of minor ones? Uh, one, uh, number four, lived experience is more important than objective evidence in understanding oppression. So if you really want to understand oppression, you have to go to oppressed people and ask them not about data and statistics and objective evidence, but ask them about their lived experience. They can tell you about oppression firsthand. Um, number five, this is a big one, actually. Oppressor groups hide their oppression under the guise of objectivity. They'll pretend to be objective. They'll, oppressor groups will say, oh, there are reasons that we do these things. There are There's an argument to support our ideologies and our, our, our laws and our policies, but that's all a pretense. It's a disguise. It's a way to, to conceal their will to dominate and impose their values on the rest of us. And then lastly, um, people groups at the intersections of multiple oppressed groups uh, experience oppression in a unique way. This is the idea of intersectionality. So, for example, a, um, a, woman, a poor Native American woman would experience oppression in a unique way that, say, just a poor person or just a Native American or just uh, a woman would not necessarily experience all three of those oppressed groups coming together. So to really know her oppression, you have to ask her about it. You can't just ask women in general about how does she experience oppression. Hmm. So those briefly, and I can go, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. For sure. Um, what, what struck your fancy? What was sort of most yeah. interesting to you about those six? For sure. And, and before we even jump into those six, I, w- I just yeah. want to highlight the importance to our listeners of what you said uh, just a minute ago about the importance of definitions. And I think that's something, when you're starting to think critically and worldviewishly, that's one of the main important things that we all can do is understand exactly what we mean by the terms we're using. And, you know, there's so many times when that's relevant. You think about evolution, for instance, and how that's Mm -hmm. an accordion word, and it could mean just change over time, or it can mean microevolution or the whole neo-Darwinian synthesis of, you know, single-celled molecule into everything we see. And people will often use that word and not ever define it. And so debate, like you said, endlessly, not really talking to each other about what each other means. Right. Think of the word freedom. Often that happens with freedom, faith, knowledge, kind of these big encapsulating terms. And I, and so I think that's so important what you said about the importance whenever you're engaging someone in dialogue to ask them, what exactly do you mean by that? And that's one of the Greg Kokel, uh, Columbo questions he talks about is what do you mean by that and how did you come to that conclusion? And so I think those clarifying questions are so important. And so um, I also like how you said, you know, it's difficult at times to get your head around a broad movement uh, like postmodernism. And whenever right. you try to define automatically, somebody's going to say, well, that doesn't characterize my version of it. But what you yeah. said is so good that these are some of the, th- I think you said three of the things that are in almost all the versions of critical theory yeah. that you've come across. And then three of the minor points that are in most of them. Um, and that seem to be sub points of them. So I think, yeah, that's just really important for our listeners to be reminded of and how you analyze a given topic. Um, did anything stick out to either one of you guys? Cause I don't want to dominate these questions here about those six points that you'd want to ask Neil about. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at 
two of them specifically, and I feel like they could relate to Christianity directly or how a society could view Christians, one being oppressor groups hiding their oppression under the guise of objectivity, whereas we as Christians try to stand on the idea that there's an objective moral duty and values, and there's an objective moral lawgiver. And if you push, I think, anyone hard enough, they would admit to that. They would say either child abuse or rape or whatever is objectively wrong for everyone at all times. But it's seen as an oppression because we're trying to push our uh, values onto other people. Is that kind of what that point is getting to? Well, this is the really tricky bit here because so some people will call critical theory, there, there are lots of terms that are used. I don't like all of them. People refer to it as cultural Marxism sometimes, uh, neo-Marxism, postmodern neo-Marxism, things like that. Uh, I, I, ten, I tend to, I don't, I don't use the term Marxism because it's kind of a trigger word. People will assume you're kind of disparaging them in some way. And so I, I stick with critical theory. It's a more neutral term. Um, but this postmodernism, it's interesting because the postmodernists like Foucault was really big on this idea that truth claims are ultimately bids for power. That was a big thing in Foucault's philosophy. And so critical theory has picked up on that uh, strongly. So critical theory, now, you know, this premise five says, yeah, people make these claims about moral facts, but really they're just trying to impose their values on you and dominate you. And you're absolutely right. The, the tricky bits, that's a very postmodern concept. But critical theory is not a thoroughgoing postmodern philosophy because it is very much a moral realist philosophy. You ask a critical theorist, should we destroy oppression? Should we liberate the oppressed? They'll say, absolutely. It's our moral duty. So they're not relativists. They're Hmm. absolutely saying, yeah, they're objective moral duties. And the number one duty we have is to free groups from oppression. But here's here's the tricky bit. Uh, You said... uh, Christians say, well, there are moral facts, and, and you know, in some ways, critical theorists would say, amen. Hmm. But here's the problem. If you get classed as an oppressor, and you make a, a truth claim about moral truth, you say, well, this is uh, good and this is bad, they'll say, if that serves your quote-unquote agenda as a Christian, hmm. it's because Christians are seen as a, as a dominant oppressor group, they will say to you, oh, of course you'd say that. You're a Christian. You're trying to impose your values on me. However, let's say that you're not a Christian. Let's say you're part of a subordinate group. So let's say that you're in our society, for example, and this gets tricky, but let's say that you're a Hindu or a Buddhist who are certainly not the dominant group in the U.S. today, in the 21st Mm. century. If a Buddhist makes an objective claim about moral truth and says, well, you know, I think that this is how we ought to live as a Buddhist, they will not push back and say, oh, you're trying to impose your values on us because they're an oppressed group. They will not necessarily just take any truth claim as a um, as a bid for power. They will only take truth claims that contradict their own values. So critical theorists, as long as you agree with them, they will not say, oh, it's a bid for power. But if you disagree with the critical theorists, then they will say, oh, now you're making a bid for power. So the funny thing is, of course, that whole strategy is what? It's a bid for power. <laughs> they're trying to—they're <laughs> trying to impose their critical theoretic framework on you and get to, and silence your dissent. Hmm. So this happens all the time. Um, so if you are to so here's an example. Uh, I'll try to choose sort of less controversial examples. The one I like to use with Christians um, is is a, abortion. If if you're a, a pro-life person and you are get engaged in a conversation about abortion with someone who's pro-choice. They will, and you say, well, I think abortion is wrong. If you're a man, they will say to you, oh, of course you would say that abortion is wrong. You're trying to control women's bodies, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're a man and you say, well, I think abortion is clearly right, 
they're not going to turn around and say, oh, sure, you'd say that because you're somehow advancing mm-hmm. your male agenda. No, they say, great, you agree with me. <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. it's very asymmetric. Mm. They don't. They're, unlike the postmodernists, postmodernists were, were or Nietzsche, Nietzsche. You know, he was more fair. He would say everyone's trying to make bids for power. I am. You are. We all are. Right. Right. But critical theorists will very much be asymmetric and say, well, we make we make this critique about dominant groups, but oppressed groups get more or less uh, a free pass as long as they agree with us. Mm. And now, and it gets really interesting when if an oppressed if a person from an oppressed group disagrees with critical theory, then they get accused of having internalized oppression. So again, the example, going back to abortion, if my wife were to make an argument against abortion, they can't say, oh, you're, you're an oppressor, you're trying to control women's bodies because she's a woman. But what they'll say to her is, oh, you've internalized oppression. You have internalized oppression. You've absorbed the values and the norms of the patriarchy without even realizing it. So you're just you're just parroting their claims back to me, but you're really being controlled by this hegemonic discourse. So that's how they can basically uh, avoid any criticism of their position by either uh, say you know calling out what they see as uh, oppression or internalized oppression, depending on who the person is. Wow. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting because it makes it completely unfalsifiable. You can't you can't critique their claims in any way. That's interesting too. The um, the first one you mentioned. The individual identity is inseparable from the group identity. Yeah. And I'm just processing that coming off of celebrating um, Dr. King and, and how he wished that people were identified by the content of the character, not just the color of skin. So to go right. backwards in that direction feels oppressive if that's all you see and then you're going to just, just judge me on that. Or identify me, identify me with that group. It feels like it's going backwards. Some, not that you shouldn't celebrate um, your ethnic background and who you are and take pride in that, but you know, just you are inseparable. Yeah, and that 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 feels impressive. Yeah, can you maybe maybe uh, explain that a little bit more, Neil, and sure. give a couple examples of that? Because I think that is an interesting point. I'd love to. So here's some quotes. Here's the first one is from uh, Peggy McIntosh. She uh, popularized the phrase white privilege. She was the one who popularized it in a 1988 paper. But from from this paper, she writes, my schooling gave me no training in seeing myself as an oppressor. So she was an oppressor, she's saying, but she didn't know it. I was taught wrongly to see myself as an individual whose moral state depended on her individual moral will. So she's criticizing the idea that she was taught that, well, as long as you personally don't do evil things, then you're not an oppressor. But she's saying, no, that whole idea is wrong. We have to embrace the idea that our our moral state is more than just who we, our individual actions and choices. We're part of these groups that are oppressive. Um, Here's Robin D'Angelo. She's the author of White Fragility. Um, she here's the following here's a quote from her book, White Fragility, page is page nine, nine and thirteen. Individualism. Individualism holds that we are each unique and stand apart from others, even those within our social groups. Setting aside your sense of uniqueness is a critical skill that will allow you to see the big picture of the society in which we live. Individualism will not. So she's again critiquing the idea that we should stand apart and say, Well, I'm an individual. You can't just treat me as a lumpy in with this whole demographic group and say you're all oppressors you're all the same but she says no you have to do that if you want to get a real sense of how our society oppresses certain groups mm-hmm. you can't say i'm an individual you have to embrace the social categorization uh, and there are a ton i just finished reading a book i am not gonna i'm not gonna name 
the person, the author, because he's a professing evangelical. But he uh, ex- extensively wrote about how um, white people are just socialized to be racist. That white people are are are, are it's in our, it's in white people's DNA. Um, not not you know, met- metaphorically speaking, but that whites are just oppressors and are racist and have to unlearn their racist socialization. And of course, DeAngelis is the same thing in her book. So and what we're seeing is this emphasis on group identity as being an as as a moral quality. That if you're part of these oppressor groups, then you have a sort of stain on you that you have to work really hard to uh, atone for. Um, yeah, that's just. But I can. There are. Uh, if you go, I have a, a document where I just list like I don't know, 10, 15 of these quotes for each of these topics. But it goes on and on. No, that's great, and I and I look forward to in our next discussion getting it because there's something that seems right about that, but then the way they cash it out seems wrong. Um, and I know you also talk about um, just I've heard you mention just kind of getting on Twitter and doing a search on old white men. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and coming across some interesting things and how it connects with this idea as well. Can you maybe just talk a touch on that? Yeah. And that actually highlights an important point. So I mentioned that um, in, according to critical theory, oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through hegemonic power. That's the yeah. ability to impose your values on others. And that's why, so when critical theorists think about um, subordinate or minoritized groups, they're not thinking about numbers. So if you think about old white men, that's like the canonical oppressor group in our society today. Critical <laughs> theorists are like old white men. You hear that all the time. Oh, you're an old, old, uh, cishet old white man, right? Um, but if you look at the, the, the census, only about 15% of the U.S. population are old white men. So they're they're a minority, right? They're, they're you know they're less than one sixth the population, and yet there are they are the almost definitional oppressor group because it's not about how big your how big your group is. It's about who has the control over the ideologies that are that are functioning in society. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, here let me find find these quotes here. They're they're, they're really fascinating. Just real quick, yeah. I want to ask because with that fifteen percent <laughs> of the white dudes being the demographic, could someone argue that the percentage of income level above a certain point is 80% old white dudes. You know, if you look at the tech industry, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos. So it's, could someone make the argument that the people in the most influential positions or with the most money that are actually doing the oppressing, that's where that demographic matters? Or is that not part of the conversation? So it is. and it, well, it's But it's mainly about, again, it's mainly about this idea of controlling the discourse and the ideology and, and setting norms. So, yeah, generally it's linked to wealth in some way, but you can imagine situations in which um, wealth – and here's a good example. There are cases where wealth and being part of a a oppressor group are completely disconnected. So this is why, for example, uh, an extremely wealthy woman, right, would still be seen as part of an oppressed group because she's a woman. And because, well, yeah, but she's super, super, duper, she's a billionaire. doesn't matter because as a woman, her group does not control the norms of society. So we're we're still part. She's still part of a patriarchal society. Again, according to the critical theorist. So because of that, she can still claim this uh, status as an oppressed person. There's a case recently um, where a professor. There's actually a couple of cases of this, where professors. Uh, there's one case I'm thinking of where a, a female professor was accused of sexual harassment of her student, and you think, well, gosh, clearly the professor has a lot of power over the grad student. So clearly she's in a, an oppressor role. 
but she's a woman. And so there's actually a lot of debate on whether she should really be viewed as an oppressor, even though she sexually harassed a, a student under her, you know, under her authority. But it's again, that, that that's because uh, there's a case. Um, uh, there's another case. Uh, what's that? It's a uh, gosh, it's a Wilfrid Laurier a school in Canada where there's a big, um, it's a blow up that involved Jordan Peterson, actually. It, it, it's a long story, but basically, um, there's a grad student again who was called into the to the administrator's office and kind of chewed out for for not being more or less inclusive. And the way that the narrative was they tried to spin it was that she was actually trying to use her white tears to control her professor. Like she, she was portrayed as the bad guy because because the professor was a person of color. He, I think he was uh, South Asian, and that was the narrative that came out because again they they they. they want to see things in terms of groups, not individuals. And so even if you are, as an individual, totally powerless, as a group, you can be still indicted for being an oppressor and, and exercising your your hegemonic power because you're part of this dominant group. So yeah, it's, it's so important to see this. It's a this focus on groups, not individuals, which is why when it comes to individuals interacting, it's so, you can't separate that from the larger group dynamic. Um, let, me, let me read you some of these quotes from Twitter. This is great. Um, yeah, so if, you, if you're curious, go ahead and type in, go to the Twitter and type in old white male to the search box and you'll find some of these, these gems. So here, here's one. This is, this is my favorite one. Um, so I found a dialogue between Cher, you know, the Cher like the entertainer, Cher and Rosie O'Donnell, the, the host of The View. So there's a dialogue on Twitter between Cher and Rosie O'Donnell. And it began with Cher saying, uh, Biden Beto 2020, like heart, heart, heart emoji. So she is saying, I would love for Joe Biden and Beto work to run for president in 2020. And Rosie O'Donnell tweets back and says, no way. So Cher says, what's wrong with Joe Biden? And so O'Donnell tweets just this, no more old white men. That was why she rejects Biden as a candidate. It's not who he is as an individual that matters at all. <laughs> he is an old white man. So she can't be president anymore. He, they're they're done. We're done with all white men for the time being. There's a and then oh, there's another tweet. Uh, this happened a little while ago, but a professor at Georgetown uh, had this tweet fantasizing about the miserable deaths of old white men. Like she was talking about how they deserve miserable deaths. Hmm. Uh, and, and you think about that, and you say, could you imagine if a college professor uh, tweeted out about uh, uh, the miserable deaths of old Asian women? Right or or you know poor Hispanics or I pick any other group. Well, why does it? There'd be a lot more outrage. But why? Well, it's because old white men are an oppressor group, and so it's it's seen as more acceptable to crit, to mock or deride an oppressor group than it would be to mock or deride an oppressed group. And again, you should look at some of these tweets. They're incredible. They're all over the place. Uh, another example would um, Sarah Young is a columnist for the New York Times. And she had a whole series of tweets, you know, different times, uh, just tweeting about how much she hated uh, old white men, how she loved to mock them, and how they're like goblins. They like it was the pale skin goblins, all these crazy things <laughs> that came out after she was out. Yeah, but again, you know, I'm not saying that people don't say those things about blacks or Hispanics or women. Sure, they say terrible things, but people defended her like, uh, on the grounds that well, it's okay because she's mocking an oppressor group. That's acceptable. Again, that's that's fully consistent with this view that you can't judge people based on their individual characters or individual power. It's all about their group identity. Wow. 
So yeah. Neil, I, I really set this whole thing up selfishly because my wife is a black Haitian American and I'm a white man and I'm, you know, I'm getting up there in age. So I just didn't really want her to adopt critical theory uh, because I'd be in trouble on that basis. Well, you know, my personal experience matters more than <laughs> data here. No, just kidding. Um, yeah. So, th- so thank you for that. Um, but no, I, before we end this first episode, wow. can you give us what you think might be actually some positive contributions from critical theory and how there are some parts of it that actually seem to be right and have kernels of truth? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is so important, especially as Christians, because we want to be as fair as we can be. And no one of us are totally objective. We all have our biases. And so we want to really try to see things from the other person's perspective. And when when um, ideologies or, or systems of thought uh, coincide with Christianity, we should actually point that out and we should say, hey, this is this is this is right. This is a good part of your worldview that we can affirm as Christians. Uh, we have to critique the parts that are not biblical, but we should really be careful not to just have these blanket statements like critical theory is just totally, totally wrong about everything. And how could it be so foolish? You, we should really try to find things at uh, points of common ground. So I think there are, there are several. I mean, and one big one, this is why I think it's so attractive, both to people in general and even to Christians, is that critical theory is right that oppression is evil and that injustice is wrong and that, that we should care about justice. That's huge. Uh, and that's why I think so many Christians are embracing some of these ideas because they say, hey, hey, we, we should care about justice. And I say, yeah, you know, the Bible talks all the time about justice and oppression. And, you know, Jesus himself is described as oppressed and afflicted in, in Isaiah 53. So we definitely can't dismiss the, this language of oppression and injustice as unbiblical. It's, it's the opposite. The Bible's full of talk about God being a just God and a just judge. Um, and so, that, so I think when people talk about injustice and talk about uh, oppression— we should at least be sympathetic and say, you know what, the Bible also sees oppression and injustice as great evil. And think about the paradigmatic uh, event, uh, the salvation event in the Old Testament was what? The Exodus, liberating the Jews from bondage. That was the paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament. They point that constantly. Remember, O Israel, how God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So that's fundamental to a Christian worldview is seeing oppression and injustice as wrong. Now, but here's the big crucial problem and point you made before. You have to define your terms. The way that critical theory defines oppression is very completely different than the way that the dictionary or, or the Bible defines oppression. The dictionary defines oppression as prolonged or cruel, unjust treatment or control. That is mm. not what critical theorists mean when they talk about oppression. And so here's a really amazing example. Um, this one, one of the books I read, uh, this is the Readings in Diversity and Social Justice book, the, several authors, not just one, several authors uh, included racism, sexism, uh, classism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, and adultism as forms of oppression. What is adultism? That is the fact that as children we are all oppressed by our parents, because they impose their values on us. That was not looking, not just one author. Several authors listed adultism as a way in which, because why? Because adults have hegemonic power. They impose their values on children. They treat them. One person said they, um, they, they, uh, ex- children experience, you know, 15, 18 years of exploited labor 
at the hands of their parents, right? They're doing chores for free. They're not being paid. And I have to say, as a parent of four, I wish that were the case. I wish my kids were doing lots of chores. And I, that's not how it works in my house. But the point is, they're defining oppression completely differently than Christians do. And so we should be very careful. We should say, yes, on the one hand, we also want to affirm that oppression is evil. And yet we have to step back and say, well, what do you mean by oppression? We don't really think that, that you know, good relationships between parents and children or between husbands and wives, or between uh, the clergy, you know, pastors and their congregation, they're not oppressive. They're based on love. You know, a husband and wife love each other. It's not oppressive for one of them to serve the other one. It's not oppressive for, for parents to serve their children or children to serve their parents. It's not all about power. It's about giving up your own quote-unquote rights out of love to serve and bless people that you care about. So Christians have a fundamental, fundamentally different understanding of power. We don't see it as inherently bad. It can be corrupted, but it's not inherently evil. Whereas mm. I think critical theorists tend more to see power as inherently a bad thing. Yeah. Is it sort of like a radical egalitarianism in that sense where they want it complete, nobody above, nobody below across the board? Or maybe they would want the oppressor group to be below, but everybody else. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's well. That's a very interesting question. Uh, who, you know, do they really want complete egalitarianism, or would they say it's actually um, Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the book Stamp from the Beginning, actually at the end of the book says what we really need are for the anti-racists to seize control of power and to impose anti-racism on the rest of the people. Because if we don't do that, there are always going to be racism. So it's not enough for us to simply try to root out racism under the existing power structures. We have to actually put, you know, people like, fr frankly, like him in power so that they can impose their values of anti-racism on the rest of society until we finally can ex expunge racism. Wow. So you're saying that he's saying, and again, I can pull up the quote, but, you know, he's saying, yeah, we need an inversion of power, at least for the time being, so that we can finally get rid of oppression. Mm. Maybe in, in the distant future, one day we'll be so far into the future that we'll get, we'll be totally equal now. But for the time being, we need to cede power or in his actually language, so seize power on behalf of the oppressed so that we can uproot oppression. Interesting. Um, yeah. Seems a bit uh, utopian in there. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It is, and it's, in so, it's utopian in some ways and dystopian in other ways because again, they, <laughs> well, they see they're they're aiming for utopia. They're they're aiming for the kingdom in a sense. There, I mean, there are a lot of people who have compared uh, critical theory to a religion. In fact, a lot of atheists are comparing it to a religion. Uh, people like James Lindsay, for example. But in other ways, it's dystopian because they see everything is corrupted. I mean, everywhere you turn, you're being oppressed. You know, so you all have to watch your back and constantly be be aware of people trying to have power over you, whether it's your parents or or the government or not the government, but the groups in the culture. You know, whether it's white people or men or uh, heterosexuals or rich people or people of education, they're always trying to control you. And so you have to. In that way, it's very depressing because mm. everyone's out to control you, and you have to watch your back. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's a very. It's like I said. It's that's why I tend to. Put it in its own category. It's not postmodernism. It's not. It's not Marxism per se. It's. It's. This, it's critical theory. So you have to really analyze it carefully. Uh, let me see a few more things about the good parts of it. Before, yeah, 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 before for sure. Close. Um, the idea that we should give a voice to groups that are voiceless, I think, is a very Christian idea. So the idea that um, because human beings are sinful, because we're fallen, uh, we're not just individually fallen. We're fallen as a as a society and as cultures. And that leads us to several things. Number one, it leads us to devalue the other. 
it, we do marginalize groups. Mm. And so we should, as Christians, say, yes, how is my worldview, how is my thinking being corrupted by our, by our common sinfulness and leading me to devalue groups of people? Yeah. And, uh, and this will tie to number two it's in, the, in the same heading here is that I think that the idea of group oppression and systemic oppression is a very real thing. And I think it's an easy example to see it. The Holocaust. When you think about the Holocaust or chattel slavery in the U.S. or, or, or the apartheid in, in South Africa, uh, these, were not, these should not be understood as individual actions of millions of individual people. I mean, you can do that. I mean, we're all individually morally responsible before God. Yes, we are. But if you want to understand why... Why would people murder, you know, six million Jews and five million non-Jews? Why would they do that? You don't say, well, there just happened to be all these really evil people just happened to exist at the same time in Germany. Well, no. The, the reason they all committed these atrocities is because they enshrined wickedness into the laws of the land. And then people just absorbed, you know, the laws shape our moral intuition inevitably. You know, I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, well, if it were immoral, it would be illegal. Mm-hmm. And I say, no, <laughs> no, the law is not perfect. The law can be, I mean, the slave, slavery was legal for hundreds of years, right? The Holocaust was legal. These things were legal. And so, but that's how the laws shape our intuitions and cloud them. And so I think we have to be aware of that. It's, a, it's very naive to say we're going to get rid of um we should absolutely work to change people's hearts and minds. Yes, absolutely. But we should also work to change laws. So Martin Luther King uh, once said, he said, the law can't make you, can't keep you from from hating me, but it can keep you from lynching me. Right. Mm. Right. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. To God, a, a part full of hatred is is evil, even if you don't lynch someone. But the law can actually can at least restrain your evil. It can prevent you from living out your your wickedness in your heart. And keep from spilling out into society. So I think that critical theorists are right to focus on how society can promulgate unjust systems that then that affect how we see, how we demonize other people, and how we do wicked acts without even thinking about it. We take it for granted. Oh, of course I treat them this way because the law says it's okay. People, my parents taught me this. Uh, you know, it's part of society. And then the, the last thing I would add, too, is that they related to that last point is that hegemonic power is real. It's a real thing. Uh, and again, I, I pick examples that will resonate with conservatives, because I think they're the most skeptical that we can have find anything useful in critical theory. Well, think about how Hollywood and Madison Avenue, the advertising industries, shape our standards of beauty and sexuality. Hmm. Right? Think about how as parents we have to work so hard to teach our kids that women are not sex objects. It's hard. We're awash in pornography. We're awash in bad messages about about marriage and sex and gender. So we have to work very hard to teach our kids, no, God has a better way. That is hegemonic power. And so we shouldn't write it off as some crazy conspiracy theory. We're fighting, we're swimming upstream because our culture and our society has adopted these norms that we don't agree with as Christians. And so I think there are a lot of those three issues of systemic oppression, of uh, finding equality in our value uh, between all groups of people, and the idea that hegemonic power is a real thing that can shape our our, our, our norms, our expectations. Those are all very good aspects of critical theory. Yeah, man, that's that's really helpful. And I think, you know, we've all experienced that even in church. I mean, even with me and Nerva, we do music that's a little more on the uh, urban 
gospel side and you know and I know that Nerva's even felt in certain churches like almost uncomfortable in her skin mm. not because they were intentionally doing anything but it's kind of this unintentional hegemony like you said that's just that's just there and it's like the the beautiful thing or the good sounding thing is like this and it just happens to be the dominant culture um, element whether it's white euro music style or white euro dress and and hair and the way that all right looks. yeah and we, you know we don't walk around talking about you know holding up signs of oppression <laughs> but yeah. but i think that insight that like you said sometimes as conservatives it's hard to acknowledge that reality and how that can uh play a part in someone's psychology and make them not feel welcome and even in extreme versions make them feel inferior um, it's right. something we could probably at least have a discussion about in the church and figure out steps forward. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a that's a really helpful thing. Um, so yeah, we might wrap up this episode here, and then next episode we will jump into uh, kind of maybe the downsides of critical theory. Even though we already started talking about those, um, we I think we can go in more depth and then talk about where it conflicts with the Christian worldview, and then maybe what we can do in moving forward to pick up some of the positive aspects and leave behind the negatives as we work toward a more just society. Great. Sounds good. Shame, we won't back.